0: Welcome back to the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Podcast. This is Monty from the Joint Trauma System and the Committee on TC3. On this edition, we will talk about the recent change to the TC3 guidelines, adding extra glottic airways to tactical field care. The lead on this change was Dr. Edward J. Otten, otherwise known as Dr. Mel Otten, longstanding member of the Committee on TC3. Welcome, Dr. Otten. Thank you, Monty. So Mel started out as an Army medic serving in Vietnam prior to completing medical school. Mel is uh, specialized in emergency medicine and toxicology. He continued military service as a physician in the US Navy and retired as a captain in 2008. Throughout his career both in and out of the military, Mel has remained close and connected to tactical medicine through military units as well as being a team leader for the Cincinnati SWAT. So Doc, with that, we will go right into the questions. And I think one of the first things that was kind of new to many of us was the term extraglottic airway. Can you explain what that really means?
1: Yeah, when when you look at the anatomic variations and where these airways go, um, supraglottic was one we used to use in the past. But in many cases, the insertion is below the glottis. So we're making it more universal by saying it's extraglottic. So it's just outside the glottis. That way, it covers all the present airways. And in the future, if they have different airways that do different things and they're outside the glottis, they'll cover those also.
0: All right. Well, that makes sense. So what were the reasons for this change to the TC3 guidelines or the approximate causes? There were several
1: reasons. Um, One is the extraglottic airways have really become popular in the civilian sector, not just in pre-hospital care, but in the the emergency rooms, in the operating rooms. A lot of times you go in for an operation that's less than an hour or so. uh, They don't really do endotracheal intubation on you. They'll just put in a extraglottic airway uh, and bag you through the, uh, the procedure, even hook you up to a, a, a ventilator and uh, do the procedure that way. And then when they take it out, there's a lot of less problems with ventilator pneumonias and barotrauma and other things that we see from endotracheal tubes. The other thing is, we, there's been several studies in the civilian sector looking at pre-hospital care endotracheal intubation. And in many cases, unless the paramedics who were doing the intubation were really experienced, so guys who are doing one or two intubations a week they lost their skills fairly rapidly. So if you if you haven't done an intubation in 6 months, it's fairly likely that you will not be able to do it very efficiently. So that was another reason where the extraglottic airways the training is much simpler and the uh, maintaining the skill is much better over time than with endotracheal intubation. So those were a couple of the of the big reasons that we went to it. And um, there also is some information coming out of the joint trauma system on casualties in the field who were unconscious, either from a traumatic brain injury or from shock, who had clear airways otherwise, but ended up getting uh, cricotherotomies. And this was probably not necessary. A supraglottic airway or an extraglottic airway or even a nasopharyngeal airway may have been sufficient uh, in these cases. So the Defense Health Board several years ago uh, okayed the use of the extraglottic airways in the TACOVAC phase of TCCC, and we felt that because of changes in the battlefield and the theaters we may be in in the future, we probably should give this tool as an additional airway device for medics in the field if there's going to be Uh, extended time before evacuation can take place. So that was another reason we looked at this, where nasal pharyngeal airway is good uh, in many cases, and cricothyrotomies are good uh, when when, uh, indicated. uh, The supraglottic airway may actually be better airway for uh, extended, prolonged field care.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I think you already covered this a little, but endotracheal intubation is certainly considered the gold standard of airway management, but we can recognize the difficulty in, in doing it in a tactical setting. What other issues are there with ETI or, that were considered?
1: Well, yeah, the, the whole thing using endotracheal intubation, it still is a gold standard for, for maintaining and protecting an airway. But uh, having to use a laryngoscope uh, in the field where you've got a white light uh, at night is probably not a good idea, giving away your position. The differences in in training with the endotracheal intubation, many of our medics have never intubated a live human being, only maybe simulation heads or in some cases maybe cadavers, but never actually intubated a a live person. So without better training, endotracheal intubation is uh, not something that is a easily maintained skill. And uh, I think that Uh, We've shown that in the civilian community, certainly, Uh, and I don't know, we haven't actually done any studies with the uh, 68 Whiskey combat medics, how often they actually have intubated anybody in training or in uh, actual uh, combat. But I I think that it's probably a very small number. And so you don't want to put a tool in somebody's hands that is something that they've had very little experience with. And the equipment you need for endotracheal intubation, you need several sizes of endotracheal tubes, you need syringes to blow up the balloons, you need a laryngoscope with maybe two or three different blades, uh, you need handles that are battery operated. So the weight and cube of that in the medics kit bag uh, also becomes a a problem.
0: Uh, That all makes sense and it's pretty hard to argue with for a pre-hospital medics point of view. So on on extraglottic airways, what kind of evidence is there for the use of pre-hospital EGAs? There's several studies showing that paramedics uh,
1: can maintain their ability to to insert and properly ventilate and oxygenate people in the field using extraglottic airways. And they've compared this to endotracheal intubation side by side on cadaver studies. They've actually looked at some studies from the field where they compared different types of extraglottic airways on the ease of insertion and speed of insertion and ability to ventilate and oxygenate. And there are several of the extraglottic airways that uh, kind of rose to the top uh, as far as training and um, the ability to insert them, speed and and ease of intubation, and success rate. Uh, They measured this in paramedics, how successful they were on first attempt, Second attempt, third uh, third attempt, or uh, in in total with uh, getting a uh, an airway on a uh, on a person uh, using the supraglottic airways. And I think overall, compared to the endotracheal intubation, uh, they were they were far superior, especially on first attempt. And there were, like I say, there were several different ones they looked at: the LMA's, the King Airways, and the iGels. Pretty much came out on top as far as all the um, uh, the factors that they looked at.
0: Okay, so cuff overpressure is a known complication with, uh, with the EGAs. Can you explain what that is and what's happening?
1: Yeah, the, with most of the extraglottic airways, there's a, a balloon or two balloons that are inflated in order to get a good seal in the, uh, in the victim's pharynx. And if you put too much pressure, too much air in the balloons, and sometimes it's hard to judge if you have to put in more to get a, a better seal or less because you don't want to cause any problems, Uh, There have been uh, several studies uh, looking at damage to some of the nerves in the um, throat uh, from overpressure. Some of the the nerves can cause problems with maintaining vocal cord paralysis or just swallowing. And these nerves, in most cases, they recover okay. But still, you don't want to have this kind of injury if you don't have to. The other problems that we run into is changing uh, pressure in the environment. So as you go up in aircraft that are not pressurized, you can get changes in the pressure inside the balloons. You could get leaks in the balloons. If you try to put water in the balloon instead of air, sometimes that hydraulic force from the water actually causes more damage uh, than the air does. So there is a problem with you have the cuffs that are inflated on some of the uh, extraglottic airways uh, with the uh, monitoring the pressure. And most people, at least in the pre-hospital community, don't have the instruments or the knowledge to be able to monitor
0: the pressure uh, in the uh, extraglottic airways. Okay, so you mentioned there are a lot of EGAs available out there. Why narrow down to the IGEL as a TC3 preferred EGA? Yeah, that's a good question. When you look at the studies that have been done on
1: extraglottic airways, they mainly looked at ease of insertion and speed of insertion, And how well they ventilated and oxygenated the person, and we looked at all those things. Of course, when we looked at the extraglottic airways, but because of the military situation uh, where you may be, where you everything you have you're carrying on your back, uh, you may not have uh, a lot of extra logistic support for getting new uh, things if something breaks or something gets lost. Uh, We wanted to simplify it as much as possible with the balloon type of extraglottic airways, you obviously have to have a syringe uh, in order to blow up the the balloons. Uh, So that's an extra thing that you have to carry. Now, lots of people already carry syringes, so that may not be a problem. The other thing is a balloon can be torn. I've had a case where inserting an extraglottic airway, the balloon actually got caught on the the patient's teeth, tore a hole in the balloon, and now you don't have an airway because without the balloon being inserted, there was no chance for getting a good seal. The eye gel was different than all the other ones because instead of having a balloon that had to be inflated, uh, it had a gel uh, that was already inside the the seal on the the airway, uh, and it only had to be uh, inserted into the patient's pharynx. You didn't have to worry about trying to blow up a balloon or finding a syringe in the dark or anything else that would uh, increase the equipment needs. And so it's a lot smaller. Uh, the package that it comes in, it has ports on it for suctioning, so you can suction through the port through an NG tube if you wanted to. It has a port for oxygenation, so you can just hook up oxygen tubing to it if you have oxygen available. So, it had a lot of reasons why we thought it was a better fit. Uh, the training aspects of it, the weight in cube, the simplicity in using it, uh, and then according to the uh, the studies, the rate of insertion and the uh, speed of insertion, were all
0: as uh, good or better than any of the other extraglottic airways. They kind of touched on it there. Is there specific evidence that the eye gel performs better than others?
1: Yeah, there's a whole lot of different studies out there comparing side by side different uh, extraglottic airways. And in almost all of them, the eye gel is either equivalent to or superior to the other uh, extraglottic airways. The LMA Supreme is one that a lot of people uh, like, and there's been some side-by-side studies. With the LMA Supreme, the speed of insertion was four seconds faster than with the iGel, uh, which I don't think makes a whole lot of difference in uh, in combat. Also, you looked at the whether the uh, the LMA Supreme was easier to insert, and some of the people in the study said it was easier. Some people in the study said the iGel was easier. So even though they both are equivalent in as far as speed and ease of insertion, and they both can do the ventilation and oxygenation adequately. Uh, the iGel, I think, still is a preferred because of the other things we talked about as far as, as training, as far as the, the weight and size and simplicity, and the fact that it's a gel. And you don't have to worry about pressure when uh, you go to altitude or the balloon snagging and getting, um, getting damaged or having a find a syringe uh, that can blow up the air or monitoring the pressure inside the, uh, the tube. Uh, so I think all of those things make the eye gel superior for our use. And in some cases, perhaps in the operating room, maybe the, uh, uh, the LMA uh, is better. Uh, and again, it comes down to uh, what you're trained on, what you're used to, what you're uh, familiar with, uh, I think probably makes a big difference for our medics who don't probably do this every day. So the, the better trained you are, the simpler the device,
0: uh, the more likely you're going to be successful in using it. All makes sense. So the TC3 guidelines previously recommended the uh, EGAs in the TACOVAC phase. Why now the recommendation in tactical field care? As I kind of mentioned it earlier on,
1: um, depending on the, the speed of evacuation from the battlefield, maybe Extraglottic airway wouldn't be necessary in the field, but with changing conditions in the theater of operations we may be in, whether we're in Africa or in, or in Asia, we're in a, in a battlefield where we don't have air superiority, we don't have medical evacuation available uh, within several minutes, it may be better if the medic in the field taking care of the, the patient during the tactical field care phase has more options for airway. Right now, the options for the most part are a nasopharyngeal airway or a cricotherotomy. Uh, Some, I guess, more advanced medics may have endotracheal tubes uh, and laryngoscopes. They can do endotracheal intubation. But if we have another option for them, especially if we can avoid doing cricothyrotomies on patients who don't need them, and if we're going to have a delay in the TACOVAC phase, maybe an hour or two, maybe a day. It makes sense to have uh, this option uh, because patient who's breathing on their own, who's unconscious, uh, maybe just a nasal pharyngeal airway is adequate. And if not, maybe uh, if there's a, uh, an extraglottic airway device available that the victim can uh, have that inserted and it'll we protect their airway better and allow for better oxygenation and ventilation. So I think it, it gives us a couple more advantages over the NPA, which isn't really an airway. It doesn't really protect from aspiration or anything. And the, um, the extraglottic airway probably doesn't protect much either from that, uh, but it does allow for better uh, oxygenation, ventilation, and you can hook up a bag valve mask to it uh, if necessary to, uh, to take care of the, uh, the patient when they're not breathing on their own. Okay.
0: So what kind of combat casualty should get an IGEL or an EGA? You know, that's a very good question.
1: Right now, most people, if they were awake and conscious, could not tolerate having an extraglottic airway. It would be like having a tennis ball in the back of your throat. It would gag you and make you vomit. So it's probably the best use for people who are unconscious from whatever reason, whether they're unconscious because they have a traumatic brain injury They're unconscious because their blood pressure is so low that they can't perfuse their brain. And in some cases, I think we in the um, operating room and even in the emergency room sometimes can use an extraglottic airway. And then if we sedate the patient uh, using whatever sedation we have, whether it's uh, ketamine or, or Verset or whatever, the patients will tolerate the extraglottic airways then. So I think right now, we haven't really got into using sedation like that in the field, but for a, a victim who's been um, injured to the point where their blood pressure is decreased and they're not perfusing and they're unconscious, or they have a traumatic brain injury and are unconscious, those would be the ideal patient to use this in, rather in the past where we did a cricothorotomy.
0: Okay, so you, you mentioned before that we had identified some patients over the years that have received crics that maybe didn't need that level of airway. When when should a medic differentiate between an EGA and going for an immediate cricothyrotomy?
1: You know, for me, even if the patient had uh, maybe burns or an inhalation injury or even facial trauma, uh, I would still try the uh, the extraglottic airway first because I am, in my experience. In a couple of cases I've had of, of gunshot wounds to the face, I've used uh, extraglottic airways, and they still work, even though they're not recommended in those cases because sometimes you'll get leakage. But again, with the um, with the eye gel versus the extraglottic airways that have the balloons, I think that the gel makes a better seal, even in uh, that sort of a trauma. So I, I think I would try. Uh, in, in many cases, uh, you know, if somebody had inhalation injury, facial burns, maybe even some facial trauma, I would try the uh, extraglottic airway first. And if I'm getting a good airway with that and I can uh, ventilate the person and oxygenate them, then I'll, I'll stay with that. Again, if the patient's conscious, they probably wouldn't tolerate it. Uh, it uh, you'd have to go to a crike uh, because you can, you can crike someone who's still conscious uh, and put a tube in because you're down below where their gag reflex is.
0: Okay. So confirmation of placement is uh, critical with EGAs. What does that mean for the tactical medic? Well, once again,
1: uh, whenever you put an airway in someone, uh, you want to look at, have you cleared the obstruction that was causing them to have an airway obstruction? Is it, was it the tongue? It's back in the throat. Are they still having uh stridor? Are they moving any air? Is their chest moving up and down? You know, can you feel them exhaling? Is, is air coming in and out? If you've got an oxygen saturation monitor, have you improved their oxygen saturation? If you've got capnography, can you see how their capnography uh, is doing? So I mean, there's several ways on the field that you can monitor them. What I usually do is putting down the extraglottic airway, I go ahead and either bag the person or you could even do mouth to tube ventilation and see if their chest moves. If it does, then you're probably in the right place. Now. Like everything we do, you have to continuously monitor the patient. These things can move. Some of the studies that Colonel Hartke did on killed in action, victims coming back to Dover showed that in in several cases, when they had the King Airways in place, they had moved. Now, whether they had moved or were misplaced uh, during movement of the person after they were dead, or if they were not in place when they were first inserted, no one can say. But the eye gels were also seen um, in some of these studies by Colonel Hartke, and uh, the eye gels were still in the place that they were supposed to be in when they had arrived at Dover. So, even though these things can move around, I I think putting them in and then making sure that you reassess the patient as often as you can, depending on how many casualties you have, to make sure that they're still ventilating, they're still oxygenating. If you've got monitors like O2 SAT monitors, and you've got capnography monitors, I definitely want to use those. Uh, if, if all you have is looking at the patient's chest to make sure it's rising, then that's what you have to look at.
0: So many medics have used uh, EDDs, or esophageal detector devices, uh, for uh, SGAs in the past. Would you recommend those with the, uh, the IGEL or the EGAs as we're talking about them now?
1: Yeah, anything that in- improves your chance for making sure that's it's in the right place is really good. There are several of those on the market. We really haven't looked at those to see which one uh, is best using the eye gel. They're designed for detecting the presence of the endotracheal tube, either in the esophagus or in the trachea. Some of those are designed not to predict the extraglottic airway is in position, but more to see if the endotracheal tube is in the wrong place. So the ones that we have that looks like a giant syringe, you put it on the end of the endotracheal tube, and you, you pull back on it, if you just get air back, you're in the lung. If it collapses and won't go, go any further, you're in the esophagus. Uh, so those, those things are, are okay, and I think we probably should look at which ones are the best. Again, it's a matter of how much extra stuff do you wanna carry. Just about anything you put in your kit, you're gonna have to take something out. So I'm not sure if those things are, have an advantage over uh, what I mentioned, which O2 sat monitor Or a capnography monitor, which I think are very useful things uh, in the field, uh, especially if we're going to be looking at this this victim uh, for several hours. It's a good way to monitor their oxygenation and their ventilation and their blood pressure and their perfusion and all kinds of other things.
0: Okay. Well, that's good to know. So since so many medics already carry those, it's either, uh, either either we can take those out or we need to find the right one that goes with the right tubes. That's good, good right. information for everybody. Exactly. So, we want to make sure that they're, they're compatible and that they're useful
1: over and above what things we already have. If I had a, a choice of carrying a capnographer device or one of those, I'd rather carry the capnography. It gives me more information.
0: Okay. So other than cuff overpressure issues discussed earlier, are there other complications or potential harm or risks with EGAs? Well, like anything you're going to put in, this, in somebody's
1: uh, oral pharynx, gagging and vomiting can certainly be a problem. You don't see as much misplacement of these tubes as you do with the endotracheal tubes or even the nasal pharyngeal airways, where we've had some cases in the literature of people who had... Uh, basilar skull fractures who had nasopharyngeal airways inserted into their, into their brain. Uh, but the extraglottic airways can certainly cause damage uh, to tissue, especially if there's, you've already had someone who has perhaps a piece of uh, shrapnel that, that went into their oral pharynx, and now you stick an in and it goes through the hole that's there, false passage with that. Uh, I think the most common thing that we see is someone who's perhaps unconscious, they have an EGA inserted, and then they start to come back to consciousness and they will gag on the EGA. Almost always the person will, will indicate this by sitting up and trying to pull out the EGA. So I don't think there's a, a lot of complications, certainly not as many complications as you get with an endotracheal tube where you get false passage into the esophagus and then the, air, the patient has no airway
0: whatsoever. Okay. All makes sense. And the patient who pulled out his own airway obviously probably has a good airway or a potential good airway anyway. Right. Um, So do EGAs improve survival? Can we we say that? I don't think we can say that yet.
1: I think we need more data from the field. Uh, We do have the use of several uh, EGAs in our theater of operations now. Whether or not they have improved survival or changed outcome, I think it's too early to say with that. I think anything we can do to improve uh, victims' airways who have been uh, been wounded is probably a good thing, but I don't have any data to say that EGA changes survival or uh, improves outcome in uh, in victims of uh, in combat.
0: Okay, so what are the new specific recommendations in the TC three guidelines?
1: The specific recommendations, the tactical field care. Under airway management, the conscious casualty with no airway problem identified, no airway intervention is required. In an unconscious casualty without airway obstruction, uh, we wanna put the casualty in a recovery position. It's important to remember that airway is always positioning to start with. If you're in a good position, a lot of times you don't need any more intervention, so that's important to know. And then a chin lift or jaw thrust maneuver or a nasopharyngeal airway, or an extraglottic airway. So we've added extraglottic airway to the unconscious casually without an airway obstruction, if necessary. And then occasionally with airway obstruction or impending airway obstruction, again, let the conscious casually assume any position that best protects the airway, including sitting up. If the patient, and we've seen this many times, you lay them flat on their back and they've got a an injury to their their face, all the blood and stuff now occluding their airway, and they're choking and gagging. So we want to sit them up if that's what they need to protect their airway, and that's fine. And they can lean forward. Uh, use a chin lift or jaw thrust maneuver, as we talked about. Use suction if available and appropriate. Uh, that's probably one of the key things we're going to be looking at soon for tactical field care: is a good suction device that we can uh, we can get out there. Uh, then then nasopharyngeal airway, or again extraglottic airway if the casualty is unconscious. An unconscious casualty always goes into the recovery position, so that's really important. And then if the previous measures are unsuccessful, you perform a surgical cricotherotomy using one of the following techniques, the crikey technique, which is our preferred option, the bougie-aided open surgical technique, the standard open surgical technique, and then if you have lidocaine available and the casualty is conscious, then it's probably best to go ahead and and use lidocaine to numb up the uh, skin and the trachea before you make your insertion. Uh, and then, sta- cervical spine stabilization, not necessary for casualties who have sustained only penetrating trauma. Monitor the oxygen saturation. Uh, and then, always remember that the casualty's airway status may change over time and requires frequent assessment. Everything may change over time. So, not just the airway, but blood pressure and temperature and other things too. And that's the changes that we made for uh, tactical field care
0: tactical field care and TACOVAC essentially mirror each other at this point when it yes. comes to airway management, right? Yes.
1: And we, we had a couple of notes on there that if the patient has an extraglottic airway and can't be tolerated because they're kind of in and, in and out of consciousness, uh, that you consider using just a nasopharyngeal airway, that may be enough, again, with positioning. And then, if, and as I mentioned before, if they have uh, trauma to the face or mouth or facial burns or inhalation injury, the nasopharyngeal airway or the extraglottic airway may not be sufficient because the injury may be below where these two things can reach and then a cricothyrotomy may be required in that case. And then before you do a surgical cricotherotomy you should try a nasal pharyngeal airway. And if that doesn't work, then try an extraglottic airway before you go to that surgical intervention uh, because there's a lot more risk involved using a, doing a surgical cricotherotomy uh, on a victim especially in people, again, who haven't done a lot of these. Uh, you know, Many people have never done one on a live human being till they're in uh, the stress of a combat situation and, and it's dark and they're trying to save a friend of theirs. So try the other things first before you go to the surgical crisis.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Doc. These are definitely some relevant changes to TC3 that will have an effect on how medics are trained and their equipment options and managing airways in the tactical setting and and the evacuation setting. So thank you for all the hard work on this and and the continued way ahead. Yep. This is just one
1: one thing that, you know, in the future we may actually have more uh, airways like this that have gel and maybe they'll be better and we'll just keep looking at them. Uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to eventually come down to this is the best way to control an airway on the battlefield.
0: All right. Well, thanks again, Doc. This concludes this edition of the TC3 podcast. Please return next time by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on the website. Make sure you set your notifications to alert you of new episodes. Remember that you can always find the latest TC3 information, knowledge tools, and current guidelines at our new web location, deployedmedicine.com, all one word or download the mobile app Deployed Medicine. You can also follow us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Feel free to provide feedback, ask questions, prompt discussions, or make a TC3 suggestion on the TC3 website or through the social media. Pages to the TC3 guidelines, including uh, the publication for this change, are published in in detail in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. So our target continues to be eliminating preventable combat death, which can be achieved with the right training and the right tools applied by the right people at the right time. As always, stay safe out there and continue saving lives on the battlefield, wherever that battlefield or deployed setting or street is in the world for you.